City Council draws its line in the asphalt. This week, Urban Planning Committee heard that the vast supermajority of parking lots downtown are unpermitted. And true to form, they decided to do something about it later. Hi, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we're Speaking, Speaking Municipally. Welcome back to Speaking Municipally, episode 234. We are now in the last episode of summer. Summer, of course, ends just tomorrow when you listen to this. And that means, Mac, we are in for another 13 months of winter, minus 30 every day. Bikes ride out, can't ride them. Uh, this is the Edmontonian way, and we're right to prepare for it. The only thing that might be different this fall is new train. <laughs> Officially fall. We are... Uh, Certified comedians on Speaking Municipally, maybe fall 2027. Speaking Municipally is a publication of Taproot Edmonton, and we've got another ad for you this week. We're uh, excited to tell you about the return of Edmonton's Startup Week, which takes place October 10th to 14th. There's five days of workshops, socials, and events all about celebrating Edmonton's unique entrepreneurial identity, startup community, and culture of innovation. You can go to edmontonstartupweek.com to build your schedule. There's lots of free events that take place throughout the week. You can also, of course, buy tickets to the signature event, which is Launch Party. And new this year, you don't just get bragging rights for doing well at Launch Party. There's a cash prize for one of the startups this year. So that should be pretty exciting. Startup Week is produced by Edmonton Unlimited, and you can learn more at edmontonstartupweek.com. Smack, you've been going to Startup Week for... Time immemorial. Mm. I mean, I think probably that was your first tweet on Twitter was at launch party at Startup Week. <laughs> You've been attending Startup Week as like a startup guy in Edmonton for a decade. But now like Taproot covers tech. You're not really there as a startup anymore. You're like covering the event as a journalism. Is that weird for you? Uh, it's not so weird. It's kind of fun. Uh, I think my first tweet easily predates Startup Week and Launch Party, by the way. But uh, <laughs> we have been to Launch Party. I've been to every Launch Party, I think. And uh, we got to launch ourselves, Taproot, uh, at Launch Party 7, I believe it was. So we've kind of seen both sides of it. It's a really stressful experience for the startups who are, who are pitching their thing in front of a big crowd. But it's really rewarding, too, to get some feedback and everything. And now it's really fun to go and learn about all the new companies, some of them that we've written about extensively, some of them that we're just, you know, starting to learn more about, and I'm sure we'll be covering in the years ahead. So it's a fun experience, I would say. Not so not so weird, more fun. And of course, Startup Week's coming October 10th through 14th. Overlapping that will be Edmonton Design Week. We also thought it'd be fun to do something different. And this week, we're doing a little giveaway, Troy, on Speaking Municipally. That's novel. I don't think we've done one of those before. I don't think so. Not on the show. So it's not going to be so easy. There's some trivia involved, and we'll get to that. And here to talk to us about that is Daniel Sonoff, who's an organizer with Edmonton Design Week. Welcome, Daniel. Hi, thanks for having me. So Edmonton Design Week is coming up uh, October 10th to 15th. Tell us a bit about the event. What can people expect? Yeah, so we have a week-long event coming up meant to basically show the depth and breadth of design in Edmonton. We have interactive exhibitions, events, talks. Um, there's going to be industry leaders there, creatives of all kinds, new and experienced. You can learn about it's like to be an architect or about um, what it would be like if Edmonton had an architecture school, what that might yield for us. Things about systems design and graphic design, all, all the fun things. So broad design, not just architecture, but other kinds of design as well. Yeah, city building, graphics, systems, it's all related. And 
the theme for this year is meld. So it's more about not necessarily the object output of design as we typically think of it, you know, architecture, graphic, that kind of stuff. But where do the lines start to blur and what can come out of those blurring lines? Awesome. And there's some pretty interesting events taking place over the week, right? Any that you want to highlight? Definitely. As I mentioned, there's the architecture school chat coming on the Friday night, the 13th. So we're going to have representatives from the University of Alberta, as well as practicing companies throughout Alberta, as well as some exhibitions from students that have done work outside of the province, but still focus locally, um, and kind of have a discussion about what it might look like if if Edmonton had a school here and what that might yield. So this event, it's a week-long event, but it's not at any particular place. There's events happening sort of all over the city. Yeah, we've actually focused our events primarily, I'm going to say 95% for our Downtown Business Association sponsors, downtown. Uh, We have a couple out in the West End as well, like our On Our Table relaunch, which is happening at River City Tile. Well, uh, it's always fun to have guests and even more fun when they bring gifts. And so you've brought three week-long passes to Design Week to give away on the show. How are we going to do that? Yeah, so I have three trivia questions. And all I ask is that you answer one of them. You get the pass. Tell me which events you want to come to and we'll set it all up for you. Just give us one of the answers to the trivia questions. You can email hello at taprootedmonton.ca, obviously with the subject line Design Week Trivia and give us the question that you're answering and the answer to it. If you give us just the answer independently of the question, it will be more difficult to assess correctness. Not impossible, but more difficult. You can see in terms of like contest design, we at Speaking Municipally could, you know, stand to go to Design Week and learn a thing or two about that. (laughs) Uh, But just simply send us an email to hello at taprootedmonton.ca with your answer. All of the correct answers to at least one of the trivia questions, their respondents will be put into a draw. We will draw on Thursday, September 28th. We'll let you know and we'll let the podcast listenership know. Design Week looks like it has a bunch of free events, some paid events. So these passes cover everything, right? It does. Yeah. And so... We wanted all the events to be free, but we often have people that sign up for the free events and don't show up. So the five bucks, if you really want it back, just send us an email and we'll give it back to you. It's just to make sure that you actually come. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I guess without further ado, Mac, if you want to give us a little drum roll. Good. The mic picked it up. What are the three trivia questions, uh, Danielle, that we'll be answering today? Okay. So first question, who were the three runners up in the Art Gallery of Alberta design competition? Second question, what two design collectives put Edmonton on the map in the 1990s? Third, what famous Canadian architect has an early career project just west of Edmonton? It's a good thing we can't win, Troy, because I don't know the answers to those. (laughs) We are hoping to learn a lot from your emails. But for the rest of us, if you want the answers to the questions, stick around next week and... uh... We'll, we'll be sure to reveal those along with the winners. Uh, well, Danielle, this sounds like a great event. We're uh, happy to spread the word about improved architecture and planning and design in Edmonton. Thanks so much for coming to talk to us about it and for the free passes. Uh, for anyone who might want to learn more, it's edmontondesignweek.com. Anything else they should know? The other thing to know is that Edmonton Design Week is put on by a nonprofit organization, MADE, Media, Architecture and Design in Edmonton. So please subscribe to our newsletter, sign up to be a member, and you can get the inside information on events throughout the year. Perfect. Well, thanks so much for talking to us. Awesome. Thank you. 
Something that wasn't covered by Danielle is actually something that Edmonton is a pioneer in and has a very large set of innovative designs, and that's in our gravel parking lots in the core of our city. This is something that Edmonton has nailed and perfected to a T, but it is one of those things that's very grassroots because the city doesn't permit any of them. We learned this week at Urban Planning Committee that the vast supermajority, 90% of the lots in our downtown are operating without a current development permit. This seems like a no-brainer, right? If a business doesn't have a permit, if a business doesn't have a license, you make them get a license and you issue a fine. City administration really pushed back on that idea this week. That's right. Administration said that trying to enforce these permits and trying to enforce the the vacant lots could be a problem because it could lead to vacant land. If they don't get the permit, it no longer is a parking lot. And that could lead to social disorder, which seems, as we said last week, like a bit of a weird explanation for why they don't want to go and enforce something that should be enforced. And this week, Councillor Michael Jans said that that seems unfair to other business owners who are following the rules. And he said it seems like an uneven application of justice. We also heard Councillor Ashley Salvador, who was the one who made this motion and requested this work, talk a little bit about pushing back on the idea that a vacant lot is somehow worse than a gravel parking lot, or even that just because city administration issues a fine for operating without a business license, that all these gravel parking lots would close, as appeared to be the presumption in city administration's report. We know that gravel parking lots generally don't have the requisite drainage and infrastructure that makes our city function. We know that they don't often have sidewalks or have significant potholes. So to call the existing parking lots a benefit to the community is not super apt. And so council decided to push back a little bit to administration's recommendation, and they have referred this report back to administration to come back with, "Eh, do this again a little bit, but a little bit better. Yeah, come back with some regulatory options that would help us uh, advance vibrancy, safety, and beautification in relation to these unpermitted parking lots, as well as some options for fines that could be applied and an approach to engaging with these property owners of these lots that are non-compliant. So there's a bunch of things in there. I really am encouraged about the word beautification in here. I think this is a problem, not just with our parking lots, but with any vacant lots. And I'm thinking, of course, of the BMO site on 101st Street downtown. We just need some simple rules right? Like Aldrit, which owns that lot in the southwest corner of 142nd Street and Stony Plain Road, which for a long time was empty, grass and a nice white picket fence around it, right? It's an empty lot. Be better if it was something, but at least it wasn't gravel and rebar and concrete sticking out of the ground, you know, blowing dust everywhere. I think if we had some regulations around these vacant lots that aren't super expensive, aren't super onerous, it would make a big difference in our city. So I hope we see something like that in this uh, report that comes back. Well, this is another one of those things that sounds common sense and it just makes sense. But in prepping this episode, you uncovered something that happened in 2009, which was what appeared to me a completely common sense move by the city of Edmonton, which is to close down an unpermitted parking lot that went to the Alberta Court of Appeals and the appeal was denied and the city had to let the illegal parking lot operate. Yeah, this is actually a tip from a listener. 
Uh, so thank you to that listener for sending this along. But we did look into this. And actually, the city has tried to close some surface lots downtown several times over the years. But this case law that has now actually been cited in, in several subsequent appeals to the SDAB uh, was about uh, this surface lot in 2006. So the city owned these lots. They allowed parking on these lots, but they were not properly permitted. They sold the lots to another property developer, and then they tried to enforce that the lots should be permitted. And this went to the appeals board and then to the court of appeal, as you said. The court found that they couldn't enforce that. They couldn't require them to have a development permit if there's no change of use. So had they tried to change what they were using the land for, then of course the city can enforce, well, you need to have a development permit for that. But because they didn't do any change, they just a change of ownership, the court found that the new owner couldn't reasonably be required to go and get a permit for that. So I just thought this was really interesting because it could make it maybe more tricky than we've been hearing about for the city to actually enforce these unpermitted surface lots downtown, depending on their history and, and whether or not they've been used for parking and changed hands might be pretty difficult based on this case law uh, for the city to do anything about those. I'm sure not all of the parking lots are going to have this sort of a situation, this sort of context in place. And most of them, I imagine, probably there will be some fines or enforcement options. But, you know, we haven't heard much about this. So it was a, it was a good tip from our listener to be able to look into this because it just uncovers a bit of complexity about this issue. It's maybe not quite as simple as, hey, there's a surface lot that doesn't have a permit. It should have a permit. We are not saying... Maybe you're not commenting, but I certainly am not saying that this ruling is good. It's completely absurd, and courts and uh, boards in Alberta are not known to make the best of decisions. This week we saw the great example of that, where the Edmonton police officer who has stolen from a crime scene and then stole from crime scenes in two subsequent sting operations had his employment reinstated by the law enforcement board and it is suspected that he will be getting back pay because his contract was reinstated. This does not seem like a good decision, but it is a decision that was made. Interestingly, and we'll put the Canley link in the show notes for this decision, there was a dissenting opinion on this parking lot ruling, which was entirely and wholly reasonable of someone saying, hey, wait, if something's not permitted as a use, we shouldn't allow it as a use. What are you even saying? It was a very, very good dissenting opinion. Of course, it was dissenting. It was not the majority opinion. Like you said, case law is case law, and that is law. This could be a confounding variable in some of our future aspirations. I hear what you're saying. You know, maybe it's not the best decision, but this decision in the end wasn't really about parking. It was about the city's ability to issue a stop order. And in this case, what the court ultimately decided is that the onus had to shift to the city to show that this development wasn't allowed rather than having the onus be put on the uh, property owner in that case. They said there's no indication that they would have been denied a permit you know, because that was the previous use and no permit was required, you know, it, ha it, it, it can't be expected that the property owner is going to do that. The city's got to be the one to do that, which maybe does make sense, right? The city is the bigger, usually, entity in this case and maybe has the responsibility to bring more evidence to the table. But we are not lawyers. We're just sort of interpreting uh, what we've been able to read a little bit online about this and, uh, and hoping to just, yeah, as you say, show that there's maybe uh, a little bit more complexity here. We won't harp on surface parking lots anymore, though I would say that a downtown full of gravel parking lots could be said to be an incomplete 
downtown. And uh, City Council did talk about completion, uh, but completion of streets this week, where administration has said they have made significant progress in transforming city infrastructure to meet modern design expectations in regard to the complete streets plan. Yeah, these standards were adopted in 2018. And since then, they said they've constructed more than 520 curb extensions. So these are the parts of the, the curb that jet out into the road to try and calm traffic a little bit, pr- provide less crossing distance for pedestrians, 80 permanent raised crossings and more than 150 adaptable curb extensions and two-staged crossings. So these are some of the design features that can make roadways safer for everybody involved uh, in using those. And they said another 180 curb extensions are going to be constructed this year by the end of the year. So this was an update for council. And administration said that there's an update on these standards that's underway, and they expect that to be complete next year. But I just thought it was interesting that they're calling out some of these, you know, what could be considered Vision Zero strategies as part of these complete streets standards. It feels like a much smarter thing to do than to require communities to host their own Vision Zero street labs, for example. This is one of those moments where you and I, when we're in it every week, it can feel like we're going nowhere. It can Mm -hmm. feel like we're always kicking the can and progress isn't being made. But way back in the before times, I was fighting for exactly this extended curbs, lower speed limits, infrastructure solutions in my neighborhood. And looking around Edmonton, the idea that we would have concrete jut outs at every intersection in a neighborhood was unfathomable. That was just so far off and impossible. But now we look around and the neighborhood speed limit is 40 kilometers an hour. Strathcona and many new neighborhoods are being built with shorter crossing distance via curb extensions with parking management plans in development. And we're looking at parking as a more holistic community amenity. And then we even look further on the north side. And I know it seems like a different world for both of us, but 132 Avenue between, uh, I believe, 97th Street and 107th Street. This is planned to be this pedestrian and cyclist utopia where we actually have raised intersections. So bikes and pedestrians don't have to drop down at each street. Cars have to go up and slow down on the speed bump. And that's just something that I could not have imagined happening in Edmonton a decade ago. So, you know, while we're on this item, sure. It is possible to say administration isn't going far enough. It is possible to say we want more. But it did take me aback to just see in front of my face, hey, we've actually come quite a distance. I love that. I think that's a really great perspective to share. And it's a good reminder that progress is, you know, usually these small things that build up and accumulate over time. The good news is it's going to get even better, Troy, because the motion that uh, committee made this week, which was put forward by Councillor Tang, is to, in these updates that are coming, incorporate direction for the inclusion of active transportation, safety slash accessibility, and operational effectiveness. So this includes standardization of these raised crosswalks and intersections like you were talking about, pedestrian through zones, active pathways, boulevards, and other things as a standard practice where appropriate in new development and renewal projects. So I could do without the words where appropriate, uh, but still, this is a pretty encouraging request from council for this update. The big criticism of our neighborhood renewal program, which has been going on for, you know, over a decade now, and is very expensive, is that we replaced like for like. The city would go into a neighborhood, they would see, okay, there was a road here, 
we're going to put new asphalt on the road. There was yeah. a sidewalk here. We'll put new concrete on the sidewalk. But they didn't think, how does this neighborhood function? Who is this neighborhood built for? How could we improve this neighborhood when we're doing all this 30-year renewal work? And, you know, some of the neighborhoods that we've renewed are now locked in for another 30 years. We can't make changes. Any change we can make to make the renewal a bit better, that's extremely positive in my book. For sure. And of course, when we're talking about forward-thinking plans, both you and I will harp on this all day long, that public transit is an absolute need in a city that wants to grow, especially to 2 million people. We've heard the lamentation from council this week that public transit is, quote-unquote, chronically underfunded. And this week, they endeavored to, well, maybe do something about that. Yeah, we got some numbers this week for one thing. So increasing the number of transit service hours from 2024 to 2033 to deal with growth in the use of our transit system would cost almost $700 million in capital funding. And this is mainly for about 415 new buses. And it would cost about $174 million in total uh, operational funding to put all of those things into service. And we also got some numbers on a less expensive option. So if we just wanted to take... 2022 service levels, which, as you said, are underfunded and we don't have adequate coverage. If we wanted to maintain that level of service per capita over that same time period, then we're looking at $180 million in capital funding for just 110 new buses and about $70 million in total operational funding to put that into service. And as part of this report, you know, we got some information on some various tools that might be used to fund this, including property taxes, user fees, development charges, et cetera. And the one that jumped out at me was this idea of a 10-year dedicated tax levy. So if it was a 1% annual tax, then we'd be able to generate maybe $250 million just about, or if it was a half percent tax, you know, around $124 million. So it seems possible that we could raise the funds in taxes to contribute significantly to better funding our uh, transit service over this time period. But there's lots of other things that council would be looking at. And of course, you know, advocating to other orders of government here, especially for the capital part of, uh, of any sort of growth in transit service, I think is something we should expect to see. Yeah, what caught me about these numbers first was that they were big, you know, $700 million in capital and $175 million in operating is nothing to scoff at until I kind of did scoff at them because, you know, we've chronically underfunded transit for the better part of two decades now. $700 million in capital? Over 10 years. Over 10 years. $175 million, So it's like our current deficit plus another current deficit. Like, really, the amount of money is not what I thought it would be. I was expecting, you know, let's double it. Let's put another $300 million in operating funding required to get transit to where we need to be. These numbers actually struck me as exceedingly reasonable and achievable. And then when options were outlined, something like, you know, a 1% dedicated tax for transit, that seems like something that is achievable. And it really did highlight to me an interesting perspective on funding because the city has a problem with communication of value, right? Especially something like the Edmonton Police Service, which is so big and costs so much money that, you know, it's hard for mere humans to get a scope and scale of what that means. You know, if your tax bill, the percentage increases weren't just, we raised your taxes 3.4% this year. If it was dedicated levies for what caused that, I really do think politically that might change the story on what we fund and how. And now maybe this backfires. Edmonton is 
you know, famously a driving city, a bunch of people might say, I don't want to fund your stinking buses. But on the other hand, to have a massively improved transit service for what would be an exceedingly small amount on a tax bill, that's an interesting communications exercise that I'd like to see pursued a bit further. And we've had this in the past, of course, right? Neighborhood renewal was a dedicated tax that was called out individually on every single property tax increase. What's the percentage for neighborhood renewal? So it's not like this can't work in Edmonton. And indeed, committee uh, just today, as we're recording this on Wednesday, has approved a motion asking administration to come back with some options for a multi-year transit plan to fund this future growth, including but not limited to this growth that was outlined in the report and options as well to include the capital life cycle costs of doing this with transit. So of course, it's not just new buses, we're replacing buses and maintaining buses and all of that sort of stuff uh, over that same time period. So this is a little bit of a kick down the road thing, but uh, we've got some numbers, we've got some more concrete, come back to us with some options here so that we can, you know, have a good conversation and, and decide what we're going to do to fund transit. And, you know, we should also point out, of course, this is based on estimates and things and a lot could happen between now and 2033. But population growth is a fairly standard predicted number in in cities like Edmonton. So as you say, we want to get to 2 million people. We kind of have an estimate of how long that's going to take. We can extrapolate and see, you know, how much transit growth we're going to need. Maybe it's a bit more, maybe it's a bit less, but it's in the ballpark. As an aside, when administration was proposing the 415 new buses, did they mention what type of buses those would be? Are they diesel? Are they electric? I don't believe the report said, but that's a great question. I mean, presumably we'd want something either electric or hydrogen or whatever we're doing by 2033, but not diesel. Yeah, it strikes me as hard to fit in our carbon budget to buy a bunch of new diesel buses in this year, 2024. But yeah, I didn't see that specifically called out. And maybe that's why that number is so small. It's because we're getting a bunch of diesel buses that other municipalities switching to electric have kicked off their service. Right. Of course, my favorite part of public transit is the trains. I'm like a two-year-old that way. I see train, (laughs) I say train, and I enjoy myself. And we heard a little bit more about the Metro line to Blatchford this week. So administration says that this extension to Blatchford will be done by the end of 2023. Like this is Is this unprecedented in Edmonton to have such (laughs) clarity about when a transit line will be done? But because it's going to be done by the calendar year, the question becomes, how do we fund the operations for this thing? Because this came up during the budget deliberations for the the four-year budget. And at the time, council said, we're going to defer that until later. We're not going to worry about that right now. And so administration has come back and said, okay, it's getting real, real now. We have two options. We can either run the whole extension that's going to cost about $4 million a year. Or we can just run service to Nate because nobody lives in Blatchford yet or such a small number of people live in Blatchford. And that would only cost about $2.5 million. And then when it's warranted, we'll open that Blatchford gate station on the train. These are the two options that were put to committee this week. And predictably, they did nothing. Uh, (laughs) Administration said in its report that a decision must be made as part of the upcoming fall operating budget adjustment because we're getting close to this line being done and ready to go. I can't imagine the comedy of the situation if Edmonton finally finishes a train on time on budget and we decide not to open it up because we don't want to pay to run a train on it. This would be (laughs) the endless cavalcade of Edmontonian train comedy. I mean, there's, there's two little nuances here, right? One is that they would run the train, but only partway. 
just to Nate. And so that existing Nate station is temporary, apparently, and will be completely decommissioned next year, one way or the other, right? And so this new Nate station. The other thing that's really interesting about this to me is, is of course, Blatchford. And we've had all this discussion about if Blatchford is on track, if it's behind, if anybody can afford to live there. It's a bit of a chicken and egg problem, maybe, right? And that there's not a lot of folks who live there, maybe not enough to warrant the service. But part of the whole pitch for Blatchford was this transit connectivity. If we now have built it and decide we're not going to run it there, it's yet another reason why somebody doesn't want to go move to Blatchford, is it not? Well, and especially if you're paying what we heard, you know, the premium to live in Blatchford. Do you want to play a premium for the house and then not have train service? Pinky promising you're going to get it later, but the station's already there. Like you can see the station down the street, but you can't get on the train. I know how that feels, Troy. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we talked about where the automobiles parked. We talked about where the trains run. There's only one option left, Mac, and that's planes. And we talked about this before, how Sturgeon County was uh, appealing to develop the Villeneuve Airport area, and they won. The EMRB, the Edmonton Metropolitan Region Board, has approved the plan for development of the area around Villeneuve, uh, reversing the earlier stance that Sturgeon County had questioning whether uh, the regional body was working for its smaller members. Yeah, so this plan is for the lands around the airport, so not the airport itself, but developing innovation centers and all kinds of things around the airport lands. Not, I suppose, unlike what we see in lots of other airports across the country that are now more than just a place for airplanes. This was a very contentious issue. Their earlier proposals were were not approved, as we said. They did make a concession in order to get this approved. So the revised plan is basically that it's 55% smaller, this land, than it was previously, which, you know, is uh, not necessarily a terrible thing. I understand that the majority of the land that was removed from the plan is land that was pretty far from development anyway. And so there's possibility to, you know, revisit that in the future and do something different. So this plan is now approved, although a a smaller version of it than, than we had before. And the other thing we learned in reporting on this this week, which I thought was interesting, is that this is the first uh, dispute that this dispute resolution committee from the region board has resolved. Congrats. (laughs) There's four members on this committee. Uh, The one from Edmonton is Edmonton Councillor Jennifer Rice. Oh, well, condolences. (laughs) It seems like such an Edmonton solution to a problem. We have something that we don't quite like, and our solution is make it smaller. This tower, I don't like it. Make it smaller. Great, approved. Airport plan, I don't like it. Make it smaller. Great. Sounds great. It's in contrast to other things that we regularly make bigger as well, such as police (laughs) budgets. Well, of course, one thing that uh, doesn't get smaller when you add to it is fires. And this is, we're continually doing these metaphors for the rapid fire section. It's three jokes at the end of a podcast, Mac. I don't know why I need to call it some sort of like forest fire burning inferno. And yet this is what we're doing and we're doing it now. A police service conference hosted at the Edmonton Convention Center took a look at how services can use data to tackle crime. Many services across North America have a growing repertoire of data, but are confounded with how to use it to actually solve crime. Even locally within EPS, the force has data about an individual that has breached trust and stolen from crime scenes three times. And despite innovative solutions like paying the thief several hundred thousand dollars, the force is perplexed that nothing appears to be working. 
The new University of Alberta Growth Plan calls for enrollment to grow by more than 16,000 students by 2030, a goal that President Bill Flanagan has called, quote, as realistic as the city of Edmonton's infill targets and just as likely to be achieved. Alberta Premier Danielle Smith has fully embraced consumer EVs. No, not plug-in electric ones, but hydrogen ones, after realizing that they have the perfect combination of impracticality, inefficiency, and unlikeliness to help the climate in any material way, a combination she's calling the Alberta Advantage trifecta. Hope no one in hydrogen is sponsoring the podcast this week. (laughs) Not this week. But like every week, this podcast is sponsored by its publisher, Taproot Edmonton. Uh, Taproot publishes The Pulse every weekday right to your email inbox. It tells you everything you need to know about Edmonton. You'll get short, informative updates about what's happening at City Hall and coverage of business, tech, foods, the arts, and more. You can check it out and subscribe at taprootedmonton.ca. Until next week, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And I'm Danielle. And we're Speaking Speaking Municipally. Municipally.